Just Environmental Law, debating environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Peel UK in partnership with Planet Pod. Hello and welcome to this episode of Just Environmental Law, the public interest environmental law podcast brought to you by Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host from Peel, Rob Clark. Rob, welcome back, and it's great to have a chance to host another discussion with you. For those listeners who don't yet know what Peel does, could you explain a little bit about it? Of course. Thank, thanks, Amanda. Um, Peel is a student-run non-profit organisation that puts on, normally puts on an annual conference every year to talk about environmental justice and environmental law issues. Um, the coronavirus pandemic got in the way this year, so we've brought everything online, and um, we started this podcast to open up important debates to as many people as possible. And it's a great format because we've been able to cover some really, really interesting in-depth subjects with some experts. And today is no different because today we're talking about corporate accountability for the climate and the associated risks. Just what do we mean by climate related financial risk? What are the roles of shareholders? What role do investors play? And how can we hold firms accountable for any harm they may knowingly or unknowingly do as a result of failing to act on climate change related risks? It's a complex topic, but to help us unpick it, we're joined by two expert guests, April Williamson, who is a lawyer in Client Earth's Climate Programme, which seeks to hold both governments and companies to account with respect to climate change issues. April works with the Climate Programme to employ legal intervention strategies that incorporate company and financial law, regulatory complaints, shareholder interventions, human rights interventions, and works with governments to ensure that the appropriate regulations are in place. Most recently, April has been working on Client Earth's complaint regarding BP to the UK National Contact Point for the OECD Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises. April, that's a huge brief. Thank you for joining Just Environmental Law and welcome to the podcast. Nice to be here. Our second guest, Tracy Campbell, spent 25 years in the city, both as an analyst and fund manager. She then went on to be the first executive director of the Forest Footprint Disclosure Request, which is now the forest section of CDP and since then has been involved in the responsible investment area. She's currently completing her PhD on investor influence at UCL's Institute for Global Prosperity. Tracy, hello and welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. We've got a lot to cover today and it's a very complex topic, as I said, but April, I wonder if I might ask you to help us set the scene a bit and talk a little bit about why companies are under pressure over the environment and climate change and what the risks are. So... I think, first of all, it's worth saying that there's been a huge surge of interest in climate-related issues by shareholders, probably since about 2015, especially since Mark Carney framed climate as a financial problem while he was working with the Bank of England. Um, And then subsequently, the establishment of the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. So since then, there's been a rising awareness among stakeholders in the financial sector of the impacts of climate change and those can broadly fall into three different categories. So the first is operational, and that can include physical risks, which can be short-term, like increased extreme weather events, or long-term, which can be kind of changes to weather patterns, which exacerbate issues like drought or fires. And these kind of issues can affect the production of goods or the provision of services directly or indirectly, particularly through supply chains. There's transition risks, which kind of arise as governments and societies transition to a low carbon economy. 
And what I mean by that is that laws, regulations, and policies will start to change to meet national emissions targets. And as, gov as governments try and move towards achieving the temperature objectives under the Paris Agreement. So just to put these kind of risks into perspective, there was a study by the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, which is a nonprofit organization which sets sustainability accounting standards. And they found that climate change risks are going to be material for companies in 72 out of 79 industries, which is 93% of the market in the States, just as an example. Um, the other two things that are worth mentioning is legal risks. So directors are responsible for managing and disclosing material risks in their company reporting under existing laws in the UK, which will include any material climate risks, and they can be held liable if they fail to do so. And the third element is financial. So it's, in, it's really in the interest of investors to put pressure on companies to adopt transition plans and improve their disclosure because it helps them to assess and manage risks associated with both individual investments and across their investment portfolios. And not doing that could have really serious implications on their revenue going forward. But this is not a new area, is it? Because Tracy, you've obviously been working in this area for some time and, and the need and the focus on investors' responsibilities hasn't just come out of nowhere. It's been building over time gradually, hasn't it? Indeed. Uh, I think one of the key points where in, investors were being formally asked to do more than just look after their clients' uh, investment performance came after the crash with the Walker Report of 2009, in which investors were asked why they had not acted for uh, the high levels of financial risk in their investee financial institutions. Um, and that really set the ball rolling so that there started to be increasing formalization of investors having responsibilities as well as rights. And I think the um, interaction of financial factors and legal risk is really interesting. And I wonder to what extent is this something that should be seen as an opportunity by businesses financially as well as a risk does this fall only into risk management or is it is it a business plan point for identifying new opportunities too there are a lot of opportunities for doing your normal business in a better way say with a lower carbon footprint uh, one of the issues is whether there is a quote a payback on making that change um, and so where the company might be confident that their customers will respond positively to them making this change. Those tend to be the companies that are most willing to see it as a business opportunity. Say, for example, um, if you were looking at some of the soft drinks companies that sell to a lot to teenagers who are more sensitive to climate change issues than, say, their grandparents, um, being positively associated with a lower carbon footprint will get them potentially more business. Um, it's much harder when there seems to be very little traction with customers for making those changes. Just following on from what Rob was saying about risk management, I think risk management can be an opportunity. And there's three main reasons for that. The first is that it, by, by transitioning and kind of addressing your climate change related risks, you can help the company manage those physical and transition risks associated with the business, which is needed to support the long-term success of the company, which is a legal requirement. It helps to generate investor trust, as Tracy was saying, and it helps a company manage legal risks. Um, I also think that there's kind of more broad opportunities in terms of transitioning towards 
technologies that are going to be needed for the energy transition, such as renewables, carbon capture and storage, and energy storage. And I think that that's kind of been acknowledged already by major companies. And you can see that in the way that oil majors are starting to put an emphasis on renewables and transitioning. And it's important that they are kind of taking hold of that opportunity because it's, it, it's a financial opportunity as well as anything else. The other stakeholder group for whom uh, opportunities really makes a difference is actually employees because a lot of companies looking to take on millennial graduates, they want the pick of the bunch. Uh, and many of that generation don't want to work for companies that are not doing their bit for the environment and showing the appropriate considerations. Um, so you are starting to see much more sensitivity at the recruitment end, and it's becoming a, uh, a workforce issue, which shows that there are more than just the um, the customers or just the investors involved in this discussion. The cynic in me would say that perhaps COVID will put pay to that because obviously, you know, those millennials and Gen Zs coming out of university or going into maybe second jobs will be desperate to get work because the employment market will be so tied. And I worry as if you added to that too, I wonder if, you know, your point about Coca-Cola and things, I wonder if there's a, if there's an issue here about uh, greenwashing, you know, and are companies really committed to this or are they just greenwashing because they think it might help them sell more products? I think once the employees are in, even if they have taken that as their first job, they won't necessarily stay because once they're on the inside, they can see what is genuine or what is not genuine. Um, so, Yes, I do suspect there's a lot of greenwashing. It's quite astonishing uh, the number of sustainable development gold icons that are scattered across every company's annual report. And yet when you actually delve in, uh, they've in some instances misinterpreted them in that the one about gender respect and equality, I think that's number five, um, is interpreted as putting women on boards when in fact, the technicalities of that SDG are much more to do with uh, sexual harassment and uh, female genital mutilation and child marriage. So in some instances, they're being used far too easily. Um, and that whether that constitutes greenwashing or just a particularly adept marketing department, um, one has to sort of leave in abeyance. Yeah, and we all know the success about getting women on boards is pretty negligible anyway, isn't it? Sorry, Rob. Oh, sorry, I was going to say that I think there's, um, it touches on the point about the quality of disclosures made by companies um, and how much substance there is there and whether the legal requirement to disclose and other legal requirements can cut through some of this greenwashing if a light, a light touch or um, superficial approach isn't good enough under the applicable legal rules. Um, so it's probably a good time to drill down into some of the legal duties, both on company directors and on investors in relation to climate risk. Um, so I wonder if we could start with companies and talk about some of the main legal rules and duties that fall on company directors um, to act well in relation to climate risk and related disclosure. The main thing when you're talking about disclosure is that in the UK, it's already mandatory for directors to disclose all risks that are material to the company. And that includes environmental risks and any risks related to climate change. And I mean, as I said earlier, the majority of companies are likely to be directly or indirectly affected by climate change. And it's therefore reasonable to assume that the majority of companies are therefore legally mandated to disclose how climate change is going to impact their business. 
Um, and I think that companies are, are realizing this and realizing that climate change and climate risk is part of their existing legal obligations. And you can see that through the fact that there's very few major companies that don't mention climate change at all in their annual reports. Mm. Um, and I think this is kind of encouraged because there's been some buy-in from very major players like the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England, and they've made very clear that climate impacts can have material impacts on businesses. And do, do you see a big, a big range of quality of disclosure still, or do you feel that companies are falling into line with best practice because of these regimes? So that's actually quite difficult. I think that there is quite a lot of variability. Some people's annual reports will only mention it briefly. Some people will have several pages on climate risk. Um, and one of the problems with that, with that is the fact that companies are the ones who are responsible for determining materiality. And this isn't something that is particularly well regulated. If a company thinks that an issue isn't material, there isn't really a way for regulators to, to come in on that because they aren't the ones who are responsible for doing materiality tests. And I think that one of the positive developments, which is hopefully going to go some way to address that, is that the FCA is currently doing consultations at the moment to make TCFD-aligned reporting mandatory on a a comply or explain basis for premium listed companies mm -hmm. and they have been talking about it being a stepped approach in that eventually it's going to become entirely mandatory and will eventually apply to both standard and premium listed companies so i think we're moving in the right direction and those changes to regulations are what are the things that are going to make reporting a lot more consistent there is quite a spectrum in all of this though because if you look from the beginning of the climate change reporting in 1998 you had the first IPCC report and then the NGO the Carbon Disclosure Project or CDP uh, launched in 2000 asking for voluntary disclosure of people's carbon footprints initially on their own operations only and also on the sources of uh, the electricity and power that they used so scope one and scope two uh, and then that uh, level of voluntary disclosure extended and extended and the methodologies became clearer. And by 2013, there was a statutory instrument in the UK that now requires companies to declare their scope one and scope two emissions in their annual reports. So every UK company is now forced to measure those amounts. Um, so these things are on a sequence, whether it's a fast enough sequence um, for things becoming more formalized is debatable. Uh, and everybody would like to see it happen quicker. But th these things sort of bounce around between voluntary conceptual agreements, then refining the methodology, and then finally sort of mandating disclosure. And, and Tracy, how are big investors using those disclosures? And has that provoked a change in attitude among um, big investing institutions in terms of how they approach companies in their portfolios and how able they are to challenge them on some of these issues? Uh, it has made a difference. I think in some ways, though, the Stern report, which started to try and um, put numbers on the economic or financial impact of climate change, was where things really started to gain traction. And you may remember the Carbon Tracker Initiative started to talk about stranded assets in that in the attempt to reduce carbon, there would be pools of fossil fuels that became unviable. And yet these 
assets were still on the balance sheets of the oil companies or the fossil fuel companies. Um, and therefore, the company ran the risk of being financially misleading as to its valuation. Um, so there are issues, I'm afraid to say risk is still probably the largest driver of investor engagement. If there's going to be a sudden increase in costs, uh, Forest Footprint Disclosure was asking companies to think about the carbon footprint involved in their sourcing policies for palm oil, soy, wood products and beef. And uh, we really had to do a huge amount of explanation about the footprints that were involved in sourcing or sourcing without putting particular constraints on supply chains. So it's an educational process. Um, and once the education is out there and has become credible, whether that's because a particular standard has been developed um, or a particular grouping like the Roundtable for Responsible Soy, um, then investors feel more comfortable bringing up the topic. But when you consider that most investors have maybe 600 to 1,000 companies in a portfolio, you need to almost pre-digest the information to get the relevant touch points for them to act. Tracy, how much do you think individual shareholders have a role to play in this? Because, you know, however large or small your own personal portfolio might be, or one that you don't actually directly control through, say, a pension fund, how much is shareholder pressure uh, a factor in changing some of these attitudes? It's, it's very hard to get real pressure uh, as a retail investor at the moment. Um, the way that pensions legislation has moved, every pension is required to have a policy on ESG issues. Uh, the regulation doesn't say what that policy has to be, but that allows anyone who is a pension contributor to that policy can ask and challenge that policy uh, if they're so minded, but it is a very bureaucratic process and actually finding who to address your concerns to can be very tough. Um, in terms of retail investment, there are ways in which you can have your votes recognized uh, if you're prepared to relist your investments using the Crest system. But that, again, is very costly and uh, to some extent counteracts that the, the economies of scale of going in through, say, a unit trust or an investment trust as a collective investment vehicle. Um, uh, you may have seen that uh, Richard Curtis has just launched a, um, a campaign to encourage greater ease of access. But when I've spoken to investment institutions, they say it's extremely difficult because it's not a yes, no answer. Um, you know, people have grades of, well, I don't want to be in thermal coal or I don't want to be in fracking, but I'm quite happy to own ordinary oil provided there's some biofuels or renewable energy in the portfolio. You know, it's not a simple task to say everybody wants us to do X. Um, and I think, April, you have another example of a retail investor. Yes. So there's, there's quite a lot of discussion going on at the moment about how to engage those retail investors. Um, because, as you say, the infrastructure just doesn't really exist for retail investors to convey their voting, voting preferences all the way down the asset ownership chain to the institution that holds their shares for them and exercises their voting rights. Um, but I think that the infrastructure is kind of at the moment being, being developed because it is a really important thing. I think it's something like um, up to 30% markets are kind of indirectly held by retail investors in Europe. 
Um, so there's platforms like Chinello, which is seeking to set up an online platform to allow individuals to see how their shares are being used at AGMs. And I think the intention is that hopefully this is going to develop into a system where they can eventually get better control over their voting rights and those preferences can be kind of transmitted all the way down to whoever it is that owns their shares. There is um, a power of, of, of collective action as well, isn't there? Sorry, Rob, but, but, but I was just thinking this is a student podcast to some sense, and I'm thinking about what students have been doing about putting pressure on universities and institutions to disinvest and to change their own investment structures. So, so given that, you know, a lot of the work you do at Client Earth is around, you know, engaging public in campaigns and that really pushing it. Do you think that that is a valuable use of, of, of students' times and those calls or, or are we just tinkering around the edges of it? I certainly think it's important. It's such a good way to be able to raise awareness of a problem. And as in, like, even if students are shareholders, there's a number of things that they can do to try and raise awareness of an issue up to board level. One thing is if you own shares, you could take part in um, a shareholder activism volunteer project, for instance. So think organizations like Share Action run a volunteer system like that, where you can use shares that are owned by Share Action to go and ask questions at the AGMs. Of, of major companies. And sometimes there aren't very many people asking questions. So the fact that you have somebody raising environmental issues or climate change issues can be quite a powerful way to engage. It's also possible if you're someone with only one share to get involved in things like filing shareholder resolutions. And I mean, I think that the trend is that kind of public interest resolutions of that kind are quite rare to pass, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't generate a huge amount of campaign potential and it doesn't raise issues. Um, so in the UK, we're quite lucky because you can have um, 100 investors with an average of £100 each. Um, and you can file a shareholder resolution with an AGM. So that, for instance, it would be possible to have one major investor if you were able to engage with somebody who has a, a very large shareholding and 99 investors would be only one pound each and you could file a shareholder resolution at any major company in the UK. But you would have to bear all the costs of that resolution, um, which is actually quite a meaningful barrier and you find that even large institutional investors are unwilling to engage in multiple resolutions that have not been already proposed by the company. So there are increasingly, because of some flanking institutions um, like the Stewardship Code and the Corporate Governance Code, uh, the way that they're adjusting the um, balance of corporate governance means that there are ways of using the company paid for resolutions as a way of expressing discontent on an issue. So, for example, as various reports have gone through on corporate governance, they have suggested different committees be set up uh, with a board of, uh, uh, by the board of directors. So there is the finance uh, committee, the remuneration committee. Increasingly, there's a lot of corporate responsibility committees, uh, although often they're known by a variety of names. And the chair of that committee um, is a member of the board of directors and typically a non-exec. The uh, requirement by the stock exchange listing requirements for premium listed companies that every director put themselves up for re-election every year means that if you disagree with the behavior of any of those committees, you can vote against the chair of that committee. Um, and that is sort of cost-free to the investors as it were, but it, provides a very public platform to express discontent. 
Uh, and just to add to the fact that this is such a web of relationships of regulatory instruments, um, it's still very hard to get a lot of institutional investors to do something rather than just let the, the company uh, resolutions go through. And so um, in the most recent uh, stewardship, um, the 2018 stewardship review, um, the Investment Association was uh, asked to set up a sort of name and shame group, uh, which is the public register, uh, which you can find on, on their website, in which any uh, resolution uh, which received a significant amount of dissent would be put on record and then the companies were given requirements that they respond to what they were doing within a given period and they had to come back on that issue uh, to investors in a public fashion. Um, and then they set the significant level at, at 20%. So even though lots of investors don't engage on these issues, you are starting to see increasing publicity and therefore encouraging other investors to join on the same bandwagons rather than feel that it's a waste of time. Because I do, and I do think from the outside, at least, um, and maybe it's just press coverage, but it does seem like some big institutional investors are starting to take meaningful action. And I'm, I'm thinking of the recent case of BlackRock that voted against the reappointment of directors over in, in, the, in around 53 companies over slow climate action. So I wonder what you think of that, but also the work that can be done to provoke more of that kind of action. I know Client Earth are involved in working with investor coalitions on resolutions. And I just wonder if we could talk, talk around that topic a bit. Sure. So the BlackRock example is actually really interesting and I think kind of comes back to your question, and which was, I mean, how do we get investors to take actions like that? So just to give some kind of background to this, um, in January this year, there was actually a coalition of shareholders that filed resolutions at BlackRock, Vanguard, JP Morgan and T. Rao Price. And all of those resolutions asked the companies to review their voting policies because they had had quite a bad history of how they voted on climate change resolutions in the past. And this kind of threat of a resolution being voted on at the AGM is what put pressure on BlackRock to try and sort of change their behavior. So after the resolution was kind of threatened and after there was more pressure from investors, BlackRock's really started to take action. And as you say, it's kind of, it's placed, I think over 240 companies on a watch list for insufficient progress on climate issues. And it took voting action at the AGMs of 53 companies. And I think it was this kind of action that they did in response, which spared them from having to deal with the shareholders resolution at their AGM. Yeah. So I think the important thing to remember here is that the majority of investment companies like that are, are companies and they're subject to the same intervention strategies that you can use for any other company. So there's been a rise in filing shareholder resolutions at energy companies for obvious reasons, because those are the ones that need to transition the quickest, but you can still use those shareholder resolution strategies at investment firms to try and get them to change their behavior and in turn, them changing their behavior leads to companies like oil majors changing their behavior. So it's kind of a, a circular thing. It's quite interesting. There, there was a, 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 um, a great report by Share Action at the end of 2019 uh, called Voting Matters, um, which just added a note of caution to that in that what they uh, examined was the voting behavior of 
investment institutions who belonged to climate change coalitions. Um, and uh, it made two clear points, one of which was uh, investor action is very much a regional habit uh, in that Europe is way ahead of the US in terms of uh, engaging in voting uh, against issues. Um, and in fact, the US is even behind uh, a number of, of the big emerging markets. The second point that it made was that even when companies had signed up to uh, international climate change organizations, they were then not voting in support of climate change resolutions. Um, and I think uh, what April was just talking about with BlackRock's behavior should become more the case uh, with some of the institutions that were named and shamed in that report. But there really is an issue of verification um, that's fairly critical to the success of these initiatives, because it's very easy to send one letter and say, we wholeheartedly support this disclosure request or this climate group or this, uh, you know, whatever it is, but actually proving that something more has gone on behind the scenes uh, is really very hard. Um, and when you look at the scale of the engagement departments at most major investment houses, it's very hard to think that those few people can actually deal with a thousand companies and their issues. Um, so there's a lot of narrowing down of one or two things and sadly often one or two headline issues rather than um, dealing say with fossil fuel issues right through the logistics chain you stand up at one oil company's uh, AGM and that's the thing that goes on your website and gets included in your uh, stewardship report. So um, apart from uh, staffing capacity Tracy what do you think are the structural things that get in the way of more investors um, doing what BlackRock did or um, being more active? Um, you know, without wanting to get personal, I don't think BlackRock is the gold star by any means in this industry. So it's quite important to say that uh, there are others who have done a great deal more for a great deal longer. Um, they are a recent change, uh, but just to put them in context, um, other constraints, there are, there are sort of four main strategies for how investors might react to these things. Uh, one is screening, so excluding the worst in class companies or excluding say tar sands or fracking. Um, then there are people who say we will only vote in best in class. Um, uh, then there are people who uh, will only uh, involve themselves in sort of behind the scenes engagement, not necessarily public engagement, uh, because there is an issue of being able to get access to senior management. And if you're going to publicly embarrass the board, you may suddenly find particularly post MIFID II, which uh, had some implications on access to management uh, by investment companies. Um, you may find that you're no longer the one that gets a full hour with the CEO, you might get an hour with the IR instead. What you want to do is avoid damaging the stock price of the company that you're in because that hurts your clients. So if you have an issue, it's much better to deal with it behind the scenes. And then if you want to let go of the stock as a result of that engagement, that's a better outcome for your investors. And you 
need to be aware that for all investors, their number one responsibility is the fiduciary uh, responsibilities that they have to the people whose money they manage. Um, and there are a number of uh, obligations that come with that, and uh, not least of which is to produce an appropriate financial return for the amount of risk in the portfolio. Um, but it's not on an individual stock basis. So while one might say, I don't want to own a fossil fuel company, if you are also heavily invested in companies that use a lot of fossil fuels, for the sake of argument, a, a distribution company, at the portfolio level, owning a bit of both may provide a risk balance that is necessary for your investors uh, if they're in a cautious or a managed fund. So, you know, it's important for people to realize that there are individual stock actions, then there's the consideration of the whole portfolio. And only then do you start to get considerations of wider stakeholders, whether it's the general public and the impact of climate change on them or their employees uh, or their suppliers. Really interesting you raise the general public in that because we've talked a lot about um, investors, obviously, and that's important and the role of regulation. But but can you imagine a, a situation moving forward where companies might be, um, you know, running the risk of litigation against the business itself for not acting on a climate change risk they knew about knowingly and then that causing harm to either their their clients or their stakeholders or employees, a bit like, you know, tobacco companies who knowingly knew the damage tobacco was doing, but did nothing about it. Is there, is there a scenario where we might be moving into that sort of environment with, with, with climate related risk? That's certainly happening now. There's a couple of cases which have recently been filed in the states where um, attorney generals of states have accused ExxonMobil of having known about the risks of their product and continued to advertise them and essentially obscure the impacts that they were having on the global environment. So I think that those cases are going to be incredibly important over the next few years in setting a precedent. I mean, now that they've been filed, it's already going to probably create some very interesting impacts on kind of new cases that people want to file in other countries. But once the outcome comes out, it'll be especially interesting because once you have a precedent like that where one court has acknowledged that having known about the risk and failed to manage it or disclose it means that people are entitled to things like compensation or that they're liable under a law for having failed to disclose that, it means that other people can use those very same arguments. So I think it'll be a very interesting place to watch in the next few years. So I realize we've been speaking quite a lot about BlackRock over the last few minutes and I think it's an important point here to make it clear that the point we've been trying to drive home is that engagement and shareholder resolutions used as a kind of lever can really change behavior. Um, I think there's probably other examples of kind of consistent good behavior from asset managers. And I think the main point here is that BlackRock's behavior has recently changed as in, a, in response to some of these strategy interventions. And I think Tracy has some good examples of other institutional yeah. investors. Well, in, indeed, I mean, the sheer amount of internal management time and commitment uh, from some of the institutions uh, has been really amazing. Uh, for example, you know, Aviva has done more um, to sort of stimulate the TCFD um, methodology and to disseminate that uh, than many others and then you have Schroders who've done work on sort of uh, childhood obesity, you've got 
the church commissioners uh, who were prepared to stand up at the Exxon uh, general meeting in the US and actually ask their question from the floor, even though it hadn't made it to a resolution. So you know, this is a very uh, widespread phenomenon um, with a, a, a huge number of genuine actors. Uh, so we shouldn't ignore the fact that there is good stuff going on and not just greenwashing. Kind of just reversing a little bit and thinking about kind of institutional investors and the way that they're voting. I just wanted to kind of introduce a little bit of nuance to this discussion because voting history is incredibly important and it can kind of show you trends and tendencies for a company and might indicate performance. But one thing that, that is important to note is that investors tend to base their vote on the facts of the case. And some very active institutional investors with a good voting history may not wish to vote on a resolution if the company, for instance, has made recent public commitments or they've stepped up their action in advance of the AGM. So, I mean, BlackRock's a good example that the resolution wasn't actually put to the vote at the AGM because BlackRock had, in, had improved their performance. And something that's also important to realize is that investors' relationships with companies are a major asset that they need to cultivate. And some of the best outcomes that we've seen over the last few years has been through engagement rather than shareholder resolutions. And if you're kind of always voting in favor of a resolution, it might actually run contrary to building that relationship. And it might make it harder for shareholders to engage with the company in the future. So shareholder resolutions, I think, should kind of be considered as a last resort intervention strategy because they can be perceived as quite an aggressive course of action. And I think that's especially the case if the board kind of hasn't previously been engaged or they don't support the resolution or they didn't realize it was going to be filed before it was. There is another aspect of that, which is that um, unfortunately the predominant uh, form of investor action is exclusion. So for companies just to say, well, we won't own X, which of course takes away any voting power. So unless you're going to do your exclusion uh, as Norgus Bank did with their fossil fuel thermal coal investments, uh, unless you're going to make a big show of why you're letting it go and why you think this is a damaging area to be invested in, it's a kind of one shot impact on the underlying companies. Um, whereas staying in and, as April says, sort of cajoling uh, uh, companies to, to make changes uh, can be more effective in the long run. But it really is very hard for anyone outside to see whether that's actually going on. I mean, in my own working life, there are discussions on sustainability that have been two sentences as the CEO is leaving before the elevator arrives. And there are you know, one hour totally focused meeting with two board members on an issue where you get right down to the nitty gritty. Um, and yet all of that constitutes engagement. Uh, and one of the most encouraging things is the changes in the stewardship code where there is uh, going to be starting officially next year, um, but some companies, are, some investment companies are doing it in, in a sort of test run this year. Um, are going to have to say what their engagement actually comprises. Uh, as a result, I think we would have seen, uh, barring COVID, which has slightly thrown everything into disarray, 
a great deal more formalized activity this year. Um, but it's, it's slightly difficult to, to, to be able to see that given that AGMs themselves have changed, uh, uh, given the inability to have everybody in the same room at the same time for the meeting. No, thank you, um, Tracy and April. It's been a really interesting discussion. Um, we're sadly running out of time. A feeling I get is that it's such a complex world and um, working out how to incentivize better investor behavior um, on climate issues is not straightforward at all. And I just wonder if we could close by tying this issue back into ideas about the public interest and, and law. And if you each have ideas about what the, either the law or lawyers can contribute to this and what might be the most impactful ways um, of them doing so in the future. I, I'm much less of a specialist in the law per se. So if I go first, April can give the much more experienced wrap up. Um, I think where lawyers can be helpful, uh, and I mean this in a very practical sense, is by clarifying the risks of non-compliance. Um, and sharing examples where something has been bad practice and cost firms money. Um, whether that's just publicizing prosecutions elsewhere. Um, and it would also help if they uh, engaged in designing these new engagement reports. Um, because obviously there's a lot of compliance issues about what people want to say in public. Uh, um, so engagement on that front would be really helpful so that these end up being reports that help us weed out greenwashing investors from those that are actually doing it. I mean, I completely agree with Tracy. I think one of the most important things that lawyers can do is kind of use um, their expertise to really explain those risks in more details. And some of those risks are really quite quickly developing. So it's quite difficult to stay at the cutting edge of understanding exactly what those risks are. But I think that kind of some of the more recent developments are going to drive the understanding of risk home. And it's just about publicizing that and making sure that people know. I think a good example is the fact that BP recently wrote down 14 billion pounds worth of their assets. And that's all essentially down to climate risk. They've realized that carbon prices are going to increase as regulations change, and it means that many, part, many major parts of their businesses may not be viable in the medium to long term. And that's incredibly important for investors because they need to be sure that they're managing risks across their entire portfolios. And institutional investors particularly, because they have such diversified portfolios, are often referred to as universal investors because their portfolios are essentially a section of the economy because so many different industries and sectors are represented in their portfolios. So they need to understand those risks, realize that climate change is a systemic problem that's going to affect most of the businesses that they're investing in. And therefore they basically have a fiduciary duty to be addressing those risks. And one of the ways that they can do that is through engaging with companies and actively managing their shareholdings. Um, some of the other things that lawyers can do is just kind of clarify the legal aspects of filing. So there's a lot of nuance in what's allowed and what's not allowed and how things need to be filed in each individual company. And lawyers can really kind of provide comfort to investors to make sure that they're confident that their filings are going to be accepted. 
and not rejected by the company and that the resolution itself is actually going to be legal under the laws of that country, which could be something that's really quite complicated and something that we deal with rather a lot when we're supporting shareholder resolutions to get filed. I think the last thing I would say is, this is probably more of a boring point, but also very important, and that's around kind of helping with the paperwork. So, I mean, asset management chains are, are really quite complicated. You might have a whole chain of banks in between your institution and the institution that holds the shares on your behalf, and you need to get permissions, essentially, and confirmations that the ultimate owner of the shares holds them on your behalf. And that's, that's a complicated process. So lawyers being able to help guide institutional investors who haven't been through the process before and provide template documentation is really, really important. No, thank you. I know, um, I think a lot of lawyers will be very pleased to hear that um, by working on paperwork, they can help protect the environment. <laughs> as long as they're not actually printing it, Rob, I think that's the key. Thank you both for, for illuminating what is in a very complex and detailed and multi-layered um, topic. And I'm, I'm sure that the, the, the lawyers listening to this and the non-lawyers will be able to take a lot out of that. But, but, but personally, I, I find it really encouraging that there's areas where we can all act as individuals collectively supporting the work that you're doing at Client Earth, um, you know, getting involved in CDP and supporting the work that you've been doing in the past as well, Tracy, but as well as individual actions as lawyers. So, so I, I think it's, you know, time to pull this to a close and a huge thank you on behalf of the, um, the podcast to, to Tracy and April. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And, and thank you to, to you, Rob, for, for co-hosting as expertly as you always do. Um, you can follow Peel on Twitter at Peel UK or visit their website, peel.org, where you'll find out more about the organisation and ways of subscribing to this podcast. So it's thank you for listening from me and thank you and goodbye from you, Rob. Yeah, thank you very much to our, to our brilliant guests. It was a really good discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to Just Environmental Law the podcast that debates environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Peel UK and PlanetPod. Follow Peel on Twitter at Peel UK or visit our website www.peel.org.uk. Thanks for listening.